0: All right. Welcome to another episode of The Last Zebra. I'm your host, Ugo Ezema, and as always, please don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, share. And today, I have a very special guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Chantal mm-hmm. Simmons, 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 yes, Dr. Chantal Simmons. Thank you and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: absolutely. Um, we were we got acquainted just a few minutes ago, really, True. and but we know a very special mutual friend to both of us, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Tonia Jones and Dr. Gloria Jones. Mm-hmm. Shout out to them. Um, for, for setting this up for us. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, that open-ended question is actually one that is always challenging to answer because there's so many directions that you could go. But yeah. I tend to tell people to work on their narrative. So I'm going to try and practice what I preach here. <laughs> um, so my full name is F.A. Chantal Ghani Simons. Mm. But I do go by Chantal, in case anyone's wondering. Um, I grew up in Ghana. Uh, had wonderful childhood Moved to the United States for college, went to Yale for undergrad. I was a French and chemistry double major, and it was probably one of the best experiences of my life because I got to use both parts of my brain and really interact with the science world, but still keep the humanities and keep that connectedness. I also was pre-med during that time, so you can imagine that is, it was a lot. But I was living my best life. I yeah. Was very engaged socially and you know, doing the thing um, in terms of academics. Went to med school in New York, I went to Mount Sinai. Again, great experience. I always thought I was gonna be a geriatrician. I knew I was gonna go into medicine, I was gonna go into geriatrics and palliative care. That was my calling or so I thought. Then fell in love with surgery. And this is a crisis moment because in my mind, a surgeon could not be a parent, Mm. but I wanted to be a parent. So what was that gonna look like? Um, Ultimately, I found urology, so urological surgery, and it ended up for a variety of reasons, which we can explore if you'd like to chat about it. Yeah, of course. Um, I ended up deciding that that would be the best home for me. Um, So fast forward a number of years, I went to UCLA where I completed my urologic surgery training. It was a six-year program. And as probably Dr. Tony Jones has shared with you, it was rough, (laughs) but we survived. We did the thing. And currently I'm a a fellow at the University of Michigan. So I'm doing a fellowship in something called neuro urology and pelvic reconstructive surgery. Mm. And it's a very niche um, kind of surgical field, but absolutely love what I do. I love my patients. Um, I enjoy work. And outside of that, I'm getting a master's in health professions education. And with that, my focus is, Basically, creating table, I'm um, creating space at the table for people who have never, never had historically had access. So, trying to understand barriers to entry into a career like medicine, mm-hmm. more specifically, a career in surgery or in neurologic surgery for people who look like me, mm-hmm. so people who identify as underrepresented in medicine, people coming from low income backgrounds, and people who identify as being first generation um, students, trying to understand what makes it so difficult for them to be. You know, in a place such as the one that I occupy, why am I a unicorn in this place? What kinds of barriers exist? And what are the facilitators so we can ensure that there is more representation in the kinds of echelons that we tend to occupy here in higher medicine? So. That's kind of my professional story, but more importantly, I'm a mom. I have a hey. one-year-old, and she's awesome. And I am—I am a proud wife. I have the best husband. My husband is my favorite half, as I like to call him.
0: Your favorite half. My
1: favorite half. I love that. Mm-hmm. Is
0: he in medicine as well?
1: Heck no. <laughs> I, there could not be two physicians in my household. I'm already type A and very tightly wound. I can—I can fake a chill, but yeah, my yeah, husband yeah. is my grounding force. He, you know, he brings pulls me back to earth. He. He's my balance that's amazing. and I could not be with someone in medicine, it just wouldn't work, so, which is great because I love him some, you know, he is, he is for me. Yeah,
0: so, that's yeah. awesome. That's beautiful. That's, mm-hmm. There's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah. A lot to unpack there. So,
1: Presenting you like a little taste <laughs> and you tell me where you want to go.
0: Let's start with Ghana. Yeah. So you, you moved from Ghana mm-hmm. to, uh, to undergrad here in the U.S. Correct. and that was Yale.
1: That was you. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. What was that like? What was that transition like? What, well, what, how was Ghana, first of all? Okay. And then growing up in Ghana. So, mm-hmm. starting, I'm assuming you came here late teens, early 20s for, mm-hmm. for undergrad. Correct. Right? So, early childhood, to go from all, to, to, to come from Ghana, forming your idea that you wanted to do pre med, mm-hmm. French, and um, uh, chemistry. Is that yes, right? Yes, correct. To do all of that.
1: Yeah, tell, tell, tell. that's why I told you. It's a complicated <laughs> story. So I grew, up, my, I grew up in a single parent home and my mother is the OG boss lady. She's someone who carved away when there was no way. She mm. actually was born into wealth, but unfortunately her father passed away when she was six and suddenly they had nothing. And so she got to watch her mother carve out a life, a woman who had no education, carve out a life for herself such that she was able to send her children out to other countries to get educated. So my mm. mother had the opportunity to move to the United Kingdom, um, get educated, and she decided to come back to Ghana to, to start a life. And so that's where I grew up. Um, I have a brother, so there's two of us. And my mother instilled in us this understanding that there was nothing that was not possible for us. Mm. So I didn't get spanked much, but the one thing I got spanked for is if I said... I can't, I was not allowed to use those words. So I could never not see myself occupying a role. There was nothing that was too high for me to achieve. The flip side of that too was I was not too big to do anything, so couldn't get all up in your head thinking that you're so good or you're so big that you can't do X. Right, right. Um, So it was, it was a fine balance between humility and the audacity to believe that you could be anything you wanted to be. Um, and growing up, I lived with my mother and my grandmother who suffered a stroke when I was nine. So at that point, she needed a caregiver. And my mother is deathly afraid of hospitals because of her, um, how her father passed away. Mm. So what ended up happening is at the age of nine, I became my grandmother's primary caregiver. I gave her, her meds. I went to her doctor's appointments. And you can imagine being a nine-year-old when we go to the hospital and they're asking questions. It's also a very um, male-dominated society. Yeah, yeah. So first and foremost, the doctors probably wanted to speak to a man, one. Right. So they had this, this woman and this girl. And they would talk address my mother, oftentimes not with much respect. And she would tell them to address me, which made them even more mad. You want, you want me to talk to the nine year old about your mother's plan. And my mom was like, yes. So I got quickly very versatile with communicating with people who had way more authority than myself. Mm. I could fake it till you make it. You Mm -hmm. wouldn't know I was nine. Um, but I was very much involved in her care till she passed away. And so for me, I thought this is my calling taking care of someone who was in a similar situation as my grandmother, um, but I had the opportunity to kind of test that because once my grandmother passed away, my mother said to her friends who had her friends who had parents, in Ghana, who didn't live in Ghana, she said, oh, don't worry, Chantal, I'll take care of your mothers too. So my last two years of college, I had three older women, I also called them grandmas, I had three grandmas, my grandma at this point had passed away, and I was taking them to, I was doing their doctor's (laughs) appointments, checking in on them before I went to school, after school, and it was just my thing, I was good at it. Um, So fast forward to the point where I had to decide about colleges, I was always pretty brilliant at school. I'm not going to underplay it because I think women oftentimes undersell themselves. I was really good academically. It was just something that came naturally to me and I enjoyed it. And there's no shame in that. Um, So I knew that I was going to go into something that was related to caring for others. Mm. Because beyond being like a brain box is what people used to call me. I love taking care of people. That is ultimately, I think, my, um, the thing that God has put me on earth to do to be a caregiver. Um, So I thought I was gonna do medicine. And funny story, I initially had thought I was gonna go to the UK to do so, following in my mother's footsteps. My my mother was not a physician, but she had gone to the UK. So I I moved to the UK when I was 15, with the understanding that I was gonna do the two years, my last two years of high school and transition to university that would ensure that I had access to grants. Did a couple weeks and I was like, no, nah, I want to go back to Ghana. So when I moved back to Ghana, my mother said to me, if you're staying here, if you're not going to go get those scholarships, you best believe you have to get a scholarship to go to the United States mm-hmm. because that education is really expensive. I was like, you know, I didn't know what that meant because I didn't have an understanding of the stats to get into mm-hmm. schools. All of that was a foreign concept. I just knew I was smart. I worked hard. I'm going to apply Surely it should work. <laughs> so I had 10 institutions, didn't know much about them. They just happened to be institutions that people from my high school had gotten into. Um, and my, the counselor at our school said, yeah, that looks like a reasonable list. I applied to 10. I actually got into all 10. And was trying to decide between Yale and Stanford. Those were my top two. So my mother said, you know, I'll go visit those schools for you. And then I'll kind of give you the lowdown because I couldn't leave school to go visit. Right, right. She landed in New York. She went to Yale first, and she said, "That's where you're gonna go." She, so she canceled all her, all the other institutions, and so that's where I went. And I had a phenomenal experience in college.
0: That's awesome.
1: Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's, I know that's a long winded answer, mm-hmm. but like I said.
0: I think w- one of my mm-hmm. favorite things you said is mm-hmm. at the beginning, where when you were describing how there's nothing you can't do, mm-hmm. the two, the the duplicity of that statement. Yeah. Right, you're not too big for something, but you, but everything is also available for you. I love that. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, is that where the accent came from? You, I mean, the two weeks in, uh, in I UK. I was born
1: in the UK. Ah, identity. so we moved to Ghana. Ah. Then we moved. Yes, yeah. so gotcha. I've, mo- I've moved around.
0: Gotcha, mm-hmm. gotcha, gotcha. All right, so you get to you get to Yale. Um, mm-hmm. Culture shock.
1: No, I should have mentioned also. I travelled very extensively as a child. Oh, good. And the idea again was my. It wasn't because we were financially bawling. Mm-hmm. My mother recognized that it was important for us to be able to interact with people from different parts of the world, um, seeing people in their in their own spaces, having an appreciation for different cultures. Mm-hmm. So most summers we would go somewhere new, and you know she would say. As long as if I've got my two kids, I hold one on one side, hold one on the other side, and we can go see the world. So I traveled very extensively. Before I moved to the U.S. for college, I'd already been to 33 states. Wow. And um, I'd been all over Europe. She sometimes, before this was, I don't know if it's illegal, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) as a kid, she would sometimes go to the destination first Mm -hmm. and have my brother and I come on our own and she would meet us on the other side. She wanted us to be able to learn how to navigate airports on our own Mm. in case something happened to her. Because I think, again, this fear of loss of a parent was something that continued to be... um, continued to weigh on her and she mm-hmm. wanted us to be able to learn how to navigate the world independently so i'd been to the u.s i was like i know like i know how to do this, this thing i got this but she stayed for three months so she didn't stay with me in college she stayed in a neighboring town with an aunt mm-hmm. every saturday she came over she made me jolt off hey. she went to costco she got me this chocolate cake my freshman 15 was from that chocolate cake <laughs> and then she left and I'd gotten into this routine where every day after my chemistry class I was coming down Science Hill, I called my mom and just gave her the lowdown of what was going on that day. And now I had no one to call because of the time difference. And that's when it hit me. Three months in, my mother had left. And I remember calling her once. I was like, yeah, mommy, I changed my mind. I want to come back. She's like, no, it doesn't work. That <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was when you it hit me. You played
0: that trick already. You're yeah, not doing You've this done again. it once. Yeah. No.
1: So, yeah.
0: Wow, mm-hmm. wow, wow. That's awesome. It, it, it's... It's interesting to me that, um, I, I think we share this, certainly. My my mom came with me when I started college. I went to Nickel State um, down the bayou from here, about an hour away from here. Mm-hmm. And my mom came with me as well. And uh, they had, uh, that's when Domino's had the 555 five, five deal back, okay. back in the day. Mm-hmm. And that's what we ate. Nice. I guess that would be our chocolate cake. Chocolate cake. Yeah. And I, and. I think that was definitely one of my most, it's one of those core memories I have with my mom mm. and something so simple. And she was there with me for that process. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jollof rice.
1: Yes. Let's not get into it. <laughs> it will
0: not go well. <laughs> I mean, we, we know the answer, right?
1: Yeah, we do. I'm confident we do. <laughs> yeah.
0: What? Well, so back, back to, back to Yale then. Yeah. Um, French. Mm-hmm. Is Ghana one of the... Because I know Cameroon is. Mm-hmm. Is Ghana a French colony of it, previous?
1: It's not. There's a story there. There's a story everywhere you poke, you're going to get me, a story. Tell me. So I went to a British school in Ghana. So we followed the IGCSE curriculum. So most students, your last two years of high school, took three cla- three class of, I guess, three subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, I took four. And I had chosen chemistry math biology and french because i liked french i enjoyed it and i always knew that using that side of my brain was important to me i show up so i'd gone to england Mm -hmm. and then i came back um and i came in a little later than the rest of the class my the principal had changed my chemistry to physics and he said because you're going to be a physician and you don't need French, you need physics. What? So I was so annoyed. I was like, can you do that? Actually, you can, because that was the <laughs> kind of world that they run. But when I got to college, my stance was, I'm going to show him, I'm going to be a French major and be fluent. And that's what I did. So I was a French major, but I also, I love the sciences and I love chemistry. So I was a French and chemistry double major. The thing they don't tell you in college is if you're going to double major, you want to choose topics that have some overlap. So you don't have an entire panel of classes you have to take for one, an entire panel for the other, and then you throw in the pre-med. Um, so my, my course schedule, my, my course load was not the lightest. And then on top of that, I studied abroad for a semester and some of my credits didn't even count for my French no majors. <laughs> so it was a lot. Um, and in all of that, I, I think this is kind of relevant because it kind of shows where my head was at. When I got into Yale, I thought I had gone in, into medical school. Oh. Cuz everywhere else in the world you exactly. get a, you go straight into professional school. So when I was leaving Ghana, I said farewell people. <laughs> I'm going to medical school. I shall be back and I'll be a doctor. And I got a full scholarship, so I have no loans. So I'll be back right, right away.
0: Right.
1: It took me a year to realize I was pre-med. And that's not because people didn't try to tell me. They kept calling me pre-med, but I was like, "Oh, that's cute. I'm not pre-anything because I'm doing this I'm medicine I'm, I'm
0: med. I'm med. <laughs> I'm med. That's <laughs> <Yes>,
1: exactly. <laughs> But I have, because I knew I was going to be a chemistry major, I happened to be taking a lot of chemistry mm-hmm, classes. So mm-hmm. I was meeting the requirements. I just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And a year into it, I was like, I um, finally realized, no, no, you have to apply. Your scholarship doesn't go over. And they don't tend to take international students. Right. That was a such a shock for me because it was the first time I was like, oh, I can't. The word that I never used, you told me I can't do this because... As in, I'm going to be applying to medical school as an international. So I'm going to be requesting a visa mm. and I will not be eligible for any scholarships or loans because I'm not an American citizen. And it was the first time that I felt to, that it was for a second. It didn't last long <laughs> that I wasn't going to be able to go in this path. And I, I think I looked up finance jobs that afternoon. I was like, who am I kidding? I can't take care of people doing right, finance. Right, so right. Then we had to do some maneuvering, but.
0: Where did you go to medical school?
1: I went to Mount Sinai, New York. Right. And
0: Mm -hmm. so that was another four years, not too far from Yale. Correct. About an hour, two hours away? An hour and a half. 90 minutes by train. Straight shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had an interview at at Yale for, what was it? Residency, maybe? Okay. It has to have been residency.
1: It's a magical place.
0: It is? Yale, you said? I I felt overwhelmed.
1: No, uh, so... The college was a magical place. If you were into Harry Potter, it just felt like Hogwarts. It was just the feel of the place, the community, great support for folks who are not from there. They're yeah, very intentional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think once you're an international and you finish college and they've put you on all their like posters and their mm-hmm. their booklets, they're like, okay, okay, that was cute. Go back to your country. <laughs> um, and I say this because when I initially, when I discovered that pre-med was a thing, I met with a pre-med officer. I was like, okay, let's catch up. Let's you know figure out this game plan. I was kindly told that, you know, if you want to do medicine, you need to go back to your home country and do it there because there's no path for internationals. To which I said, thank you very much. I appreciate your perspective. And I never went back to that office. Mm -hmm. So I had to figure out the application process on my own, um, you know, which posed its own challenges. But we did it. But the college was warm. Well, I did a sub-internship there many, many years later for urology, and it was a very different feel, and mm. I'm glad I did the sub-internship because if I hadn't, I would have assumed that the Yale of my university experience was what the Yale of my medical experience would be, and that wasn't the case.
0: What 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 is that difference? What's that difference that, that you experienced? And it might be what I felt, mm. but I didn't have something to juxtapose it to. To
1: yeah. The Yale of my university experience had a lot of people who looked like me. Mm. I had community. Um, I had people who cared about the things I was passionate about. I did a lot of advocacy work in undergrad. And and we started this um, organization for African professionals that was hosted on campus. Um, so there was a lot of shared connection, shared go- goals, shared vision. And even the people who didn't have a shared heritage with me were curious about me as a person. Mm. So I learned how to ski at Yale because my college roommate, that's what they're into. And they're like, come, let me show you. And they were like, can I come to Ghana? I was like, yeah, yeah, let's go. So I took people to Ghana. One of my deans came with me to Ghana that's once. Amazing. So there was a curiosity about my humanity mm-hmm. in a way that made me feel like, oh, actually, you know, I'm full person here. And it felt, it almost felt like it's different, but I felt a connectedness similar to what I felt at home then once college was done and I went off into the real America, mm-hmm. that was lost. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the difference, I think. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia in thinking about Yale. And I'm glad I didn't go there from any part of my medical training because I think it would have broken down that memory of, you know, how special of a place right, it was right. to me.
0: Was, was that then your first real culture shock then, that transition from Yale to real America?
1: Um. I would say I do not know that it was much of a shock because, again, medical school, you're still in a bubble. That's true. So I was living in New York and, you know, everyone's like, hey, New York, New York. I was in class or yeah. <laughs> um, I wasn't quite living. The the moments where I branched out into the rural America, if you will, was um, to serve at church. So I um, attended a church called Hillsong Church. And I remember initially I was attending as, as you know, a congregant I didn't talk to anyone. I went in and went out because I remember this prayer that I would say. I was like, God, you brought me here to do medical school. So you understand that I'm just like, you know, I'm just gonna keep my head down. I can't do anything. And one of my my roommates said, I think we should serve. I was like, Yeah, but God knows we don't have time for that. <laughs> and she came into my room one day with a laptop and she was like, I'm not leaving till we sign up to serve for something. And I was like, fine. And I tell her all the time, that was one of the biggest gifts she gave me because once I started serving, I got connected to people in New York who had nothing to do with medicine. Mm. And how refreshing to hear people not talk about like the exam and be distressed because they got a B instead of an A minus yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know just perspective building. And here, again, this idea of meeting people from different walks of lives. Um, that was such a blessing, and I, I had the privilege of experiencing that for a good two and a half years of my time at Yale. So, oh, sorry, in Montana.
0: That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I, in I, am as I'm hearing you talk, mm-hmm. and I remember in your as you were doing your intro, how you toggled to urology. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I made my decision by kicking kicking down the big decision, kicking it down uh, the field. So yeah um medical school i had no idea what i wanted to do i was like ah, let me do internal medicine that would buy me some time yeah um i enjoyed i knew what i didn't like
1: that's I, important
0: yeah and yeah and i think that has been a saving grace so i knew i couldn't do surgery okay um i loved surgery i really did i knew i thought for a very long time i would be a surgeon to some capacity yeah. i did my surgery rotation and the the hours were mm-hmm. I was I, I I for for my personality I'm I'm a very um I think I'm very relaxed laid back and you know the typical surgeon <laughs> well <laughs> respectfully of course <laughs> I do love my surgeons um I, I felt like where I did my rotation that mm-hmm. and I think that's also important yes. it's important who you meet yes when you meet them, where you meet them, Absolutely. the people that that kind of shape the decisions you make, especially when it comes to medicine and how you navigate through your um, chosen profession in medicine.
1: Absolutely. And so for
0: me, um, I did my. It, it's also called Mount Sinai, but this was in mm. um, Sinai. It's in Baltimore. Okay. Um, and it was uh, it was it was intense, and in, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not saying intense in a way that's. Only like negative, because intense is rightful. I think in medicine, exposure is what you need. You need yeah. to see. You have to. You have to. Keep, you have to see things. Yes. And you only see things if you're there to see them.
1: Correct.
0: And um, and there is only a limited amount of time in the day, yeah. and patients don't wait for you to be ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> right. And surgery is the same way. So mm-hmm. the hours were a lot. And I remember I was in a case. It was a vascular surgery case, right? And I, I had, I don't, I don't know how many days I had been, oh, not days, how many hours I had been on. It had to be like an hour and a day and some. So it was like an early, early, early case. It was a um, endarterectomy. Endoartherect- mm-hmm. And I was, I was as I was standing there, I was assisting, like I, I just dozed off. No. Right, <laughs> and my hand touched the 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 sterile field, a part of like my, my a part of me that wasn't sterile touched the sterile mm-hmm. field, and I remember the look of the of the surgeon's eyes. was like ah, yeah, this one isn't for me. In my mind, I had a mental like mm. I was like ah, this is it. This and that that was a moment for me. Was like hmm, I'm I'm genuinely exhausted, but I don't feel um I didn't feel like my exhaustion was worthwhile I don't know if that That's makes fair. sense mm-hmm. and uh so I was like okay so surgery isn't for me okay. um ob I couldn't do I didn't feel comfortable in ob pediatrics mm-hmm. was too much the kids are precious but a, a part a part of that rotation was you, you, there's a veil of you're really treating the the, the, parent. the parents mm-hmm. um the kids are amazing obviously the kids yeah. are beautiful so I kicked the I kicked the decision down the line. Internal medicine, you buy me some more time. Yeah, and then I, I get I did the exact same process and landed on pulmonary critical care. Mm. So by process of elimination, I came to 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 pulmonary and critical care, which is what I practice now. How wow. did you come to your
1: to urology? To urology. Um, I'm a very logical thinker when it comes to big decisions. I make all the Excel sheets and pros and cons. And then I think the final decision, oftentimes, it's like, well, why did you make the list anyway? (laughs) So so here's my thinking. I knew I was, geriatrics and palliative care was very closely associated with the experience that I had taking care of Mm. my grandmothers. Mm -hmm. And then I got to Yale and I discovered a hospice my very first semester. A hospice, for those who don't know, is um, a space where if someone has a diagnosis or, or a prognosis, the thinking that they may have six months or less to live, then they're eligible to stay in a space where we focus on comfort care mm-hmm. and quality of life. Um, I discovered one the very first semester at Yale, and it was actually the first hospice built in the United States. And I started volunteering there. So every Saturday... Um, I used to go outside at night, so people thought that I was like, "Yeah, just going out and partying." But Saturday during the day, I was at hospice, <laughs> and that time again is this idea of recognizing the gift of life. I mm. would—I I wasn't doing anything fancy. People think that when you want to like shadow medicine, like I want to scrub and and do the surgery, or I want to like see patients and do the things. I was doing like. Remember, my mother said, "Nothing is above you, but you're above nothing." You're right. I was cleaning, um, you know changing people's diapers, I was feeding, I was taking out the trash. Um, But mostly, I was sitting with patients, particularly those who didn't have family at the end. Um, I remember this one patient, the very first patient I took care of, and I saw her consistently every Saturday, and then one Saturday I went and she wasn't there. And that was devastating. But she made me, Mm. um, every Saturday when I went, we worked on a coloring book. And took us, I don't know, three months. We were still coloring that same page. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we were just coloring. We chose one color, and we slowly colored. And then at the end, she gave it to me. So I had it on my wall in college for many years. But um, that experience solidified in my mind that this is it. This is what I'm going to do, geriatrics and palliative care. So I get mm. to med school. That's why I do my research in. I found the one of the... You know, most prominent thinkers in palliative care happened to be at Mount Sinai, Dr. Diane Meyer, who took me under her wing. I went to all the national conferences with her, um, you know, wrote papers with her. She was my mentor. But then the part of me that keeps, you know, checklists and stuff was like, be open minded um, in terms of allowing yourself to experience everything that Mm -hmm. is here um, I also recognize that I've got four years in medical school. How many people in the world get to be in medical school? So I wanted to experience everything, even if I didn't go into that field. If I was on PEDS, you best believe I was going to be the best PEDS medical student because I get to do this. You're this right. is awesome. So every rotation, I like threw myself in there, and I was really like leaning into it with gusto. But I was very intentional about keeping track of the things that excited me and the things that I was repelled by. I had an experience in OBGYN where um, an attending my very first day asked me if I wanted to come in with her L&D. And then she like swore at the patient, or she swore at me for not being able to assist her. And the patient was there. And I was like, this is her first baby. And this is what she gets to hear. And I remember thinking to myself, that kind of toxicity, mm -mm, not for me. So over the course of my rotations, I was putting together all the things that, elevated my spirit and really dampened my spirit in order for me to come up. Finally, when it wasn't intentional, it wasn't a grand plan, but finally what that created was a checklist of the things I was willing to tolerate Mm -hmm. and the things I was seeking in my, my career. And then I did my, my surgery rotation, fell in love in the OR. So I get there and I might've been there for hours, but I didn't even notice.
0: I think that's it right there. I did not notice. I did not
1: notice time fly. And I loved the fact that I was on my feet and like doing stuff and engaged and not just sitting down. Loved it. But I loved every rotation, quite frankly. But I had the opportunity now to test each specialty against my list that I had been compiling for the the past three years at that point. So I decided in neurology pretty late. But as I looked at my list, I was like, you say you like surgery, you like um, doing procedures, you like longitudinal relationships, you like um, working with the elderly, you like end of life care. You also wanna do something that Ghana doesn't actually have much access to because I always considered myself a conduit for resources for back home. And if I chose something that there is an abundance of, I don't get to be able to um, give back to the community that raised me in a meaningful way. That at least was my thinking. And then I did my homework. So I was like, okay, what specialty can allow me to do all of this? I actually then created selectives. We had we had the opportunity to do two-week experiences, mm-hmm. and I did every single surgical subspecialty, except ortho. I looked at it, and I was like, nah, I'm not an ortho <laughs> chick. But everything else I tried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I was like, ah, oh, does this fit my list? Does this fit my list? Nah. And eventually, I did urology, and I did my two-week selective. And my very last day of the, sele- uh, the selective, one of the chief residents took a picture of me um, as I was closing skin. And I sent it to my mom and I was like, look at me go. And she was like, huh, oh, you're wearing your glasses. You must feel very comfortable there. Wow. And this is crazy because up since age 11, when I got contact lenses, only the people in my house saw me in my glasses. I'm wearing glasses now because, <laughs> you know, reformed woman. But um, I had worn contact lenses every single time I stepped out of the house from age 11 till that rotation. Wow. And I hadn't even noticed that I had felt so comfortable in that space, and um, yeah, that's that's kind of when I I knew that urology was what was the place for me. And eventually, I learned some more. It's such an expansive field. Every aspect of surgery we do, like we do robotics, we do, you know, microscopic, we do open. There's just such a breadth of it. Um, and I then was like, okay, can I find someone who looks like me who can be my mentor? And there were none because only 0.6% of urologists are black women. Wow. 0.6%. Only At the time, only 9% of urologists were women, period. Um, so there was a lack of, of role modeling for me, for someone who I could see and be like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, it's possible because she did it. Um, so I Googled. Um, I Googled black woman urologist. I found a woman in Kansas. Mm. Still never met her. Till the uh, Actually, no, no, she assumes. zooms still never met her in person to this day but I called her clinic asked her clinic for her email address because I said hey you know I'm a black girl going into urology don't have a mentor her, her secretary or the person who picked up was kind enough to actually give me an email address yeah. which not everyone would have right, right and I emailed her explained my situation and she read my essay and edited it and connected wow. me with other people she didn't owe me anything but that woman just sought me saw something in me or I don't know what it was but I cannot underplay, or overplay actually, how impactful this idea of having someone believe that this was possible for me, especially in the context of having been told by my own medical school that, again, you're international, you're not gonna match into a competitive specialty, so apply into internal medicine was what I was told. But you know, if that was what I wanted to do- That's what you would have done. That's what I would have done. And I said, uh, thank you very much for your perspective. Didn't go back again. I like
0: that line. Yeah. I like that line. Yeah. I think she saw herself in you. She probably looked for someone like herself and couldn't find, couldn't find it. Yeah. Um, That's beautiful. I I mean, I think so much of, like I, like I said earlier, so much of who we are is a reflection of those that end up being our mentors and end up um, being our attendings. Right. So, Mm -hmm. As you went through urology fellowship, were you able to meet some more? In residency women? or in fellowship? Residency and, and you're in fellowship now, but mm-hmm. residency as well as fellowship. Were you able to meet more?
1: Yeah. Women? So I, you know, I actually just gave a talk this weekend, uh, yesterday here in New Orleans. And my talk was about self-advocacy. Tell me more. Um, and I bring it up in the context of reaching out to individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst that happens is they don't respond. And so I was very intentional about reaching out and trying to find mentorship. And one way that I did this is at the time, I mean, everyone's using Facebook and I went through, they had a black doctors, I can't remember the name of the group now. Um,
0: is it why? why bad. Yeah, yes, young, you know, young yeah, black, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, I yeah.
1: went through and there, at that time there were hundreds of people on the group. Mm-hmm. I went through every single picture on there and then looked at every single specialty, found all the black people and I messaged, I DM'd every single black person on That's that YBAD. Amazing and some of them responded some didn't i set up conversations just to learn people's stories and glean any wisdom that i could i could gather so that was the you know the application period and i actually was very blessed i went to UCLA and UCLA had um, two black women who were faculty mm. one of whom became a, a mentor to me she came to my wedding she just mailed some books to my kid this week and um my chief resident, who I'm actually visiting here in New Orleans, who became <laughs> one of the groomsmen at my wedding and also the godfather to my child. What? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, good man, good man. He's the best man.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, after my husband.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's also in so medicine. So, he's also in yeah. medicine,
1: True. And um, let's see, who else in terms of Black community? I, I was very aggressive about recruitment. So by the time I left, we had... Um, one black man, two and three black women after me. But I was aggressive every time we had in people to interview. I called every single person who was offered an interview um, at UCLA. And if they were a person of color, I was meeting with them. I was doing dinners. I was making sure to, to ensure that they knew that if they came here, I can't guarantee what their training experience would right. be like, but I can guarantee that I will show up for them. However, like in what capacity that I had, I would be there for them.
0: That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Um, and how, first of all, I guess I've never, we didn't even talk about this. W- what is a urologist? Huh. Right. So a, a simple, a simple <laughs> question. What is your, urolog- because even as a medical professional myself, urology is kind of, it's, it's like ophthalmology. It's one of those, like, because you guys even have a separate match. Like yeah. You guys are very special. Very special.
1: I think it's a created sense of specialness. Like we're all special, yeah. you know, we're, Ooh. Everyone has value. Everyone brings value to the table, regardless of what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have the capacity to bring value to the table. And within medicine, that's true, too. I don't mm-hmm. think there's any specialty that supersedes another. There is the, 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 like, culture, like, oh, the surgeons walked into the room. Look at them and whatnot. <laughs> um, and that, I think that mindset can be dangerous because it undervalues the you know the work that everyone else does the nurses the tech it's when we're in the operating room if i have a medical student you're going to get a long lecture from me before you step into the operating room with me about treating people mm-hmm. seeing people and referring to people by name um, is really important but I digress. You asked about urology. (laughs) Urology. I didn't know what it was till my third year of medical school. Yeah, I didn't know what the word meant.
0: I I I think that's most people, and that's in medical school.
1: Oh, I I was I was a medical student. I had no idea because during anatomy when we had the pelvic dissection, it was around the time of the holidays, so my group didn't get to do the pelvic dissection. So Mm. we just like skipped over. They're like, oh, like you don't need to know that part. You just you know. They don't go, we're not going to test you on this, right, right, so, right. so that was we just kind of moved on. Um, and most most medical students that I of color mm-hmm. that I speak to, because I try and get my face out there in the medical school, particularly for the students of color. I did a ton of mentoring and speaking at at their um, if they had anything that required resonance, because I wanted pe- a people to see that the women who in surgery, the women of color in surgery, and to explain what urology was. Right, right, a lot right. of them thought urologists were nephrologists. So, um, or they thought that we were the male gynecologist. You know, so I remember when I told my mom I was gonna do this, she was like, so you went all the way to the United States to be a penis doctor. (laughs) And I said, yes, mommy. (laughs) Um, So what we do is we're surgeons for the kidney, bladder, and prostate, um, so the genitourinary system. So you think about your kidneys, they're connected to the bladder by things called ureters, and then the urethra is where you pee through. We also are surgeons for anything that's below the pelvic bones. So the general surgeons do all the like bowel stuff mm-hmm. with exception of someone like myself. But I'll get to that in a second. Um, but we do deal with everything on the pelvic floor because you need to have support so that your guts don't fall down through right, the ground. Right, right. And we do all that reconstruction. Mm. So in residency, I could be doing kidney stones one day or actually in the same day do kidney take out a kidney tumor. I could um, do a kidney transplant. I could take out a bladder. I could put in a penile prosthesis, and I can take out sperm for someone's infertility. I could have a child come in for a circumcision Um, One day, and then I could do, I'm trying to think of uh, another, oh, I could do prolapse, a woman who has um, laxity of the pelvic floor from vaginal deliveries. Mm -hmm. I could do a gunshot wound, the abdomen that went through the bladder, I could repair that. Or I could do a fistula from, you know, someone who had cancer and radiation. So there's such a breadth in terms of the pathology that we deal with, the patient population that we deal with, and I would hear like, "Oh, but don't you take care mostly of men?" I was like, "Well, women have kidneys too; they have bladders too, so you know, take care of both." You're right. Right. Um, so we don't take care just um, of men; um, we do both, and. You know, so I chose to then go into urology and pelvic reconstructive surgery. And it's such a fun part of, of urology. I tend to tell patient, or people in medicine that it's plastic surgery for the genitourinary system. <laughs> so we create, we reconstruct. If you have an injury or a malformation um, or having issues with voiding, we take your pre existing anatomy and kind of look at what you have and how can we rearrange things to give you this is my favorite part the best quality of life. So Mm. we're not dealing with cancers, but we're here to ensure that, so nothing is emergent. So you were talking about how the surgeon's life, like patients come in and you can't delay. I can, (laughs) Um, so it's quality of life surgery. There's nothing in in my field that is truly an emergency. And there's a lot of thinking about, this is the part that really harkens back to my palliative care days. We really, we have discussions about what's important to you, what's most bothersome to you. So it's not like you're leaking urine, let's fix it. Mm-hmm. You might actually not, you might not care about the leaking leakage of urine, or you might say it's the fact that I have to wear a pad. But we might not have to do a surgery to fix that. Mm-hmm. We can do other things to fix that. Um, and so really getting a good understanding of the cause of bother of a patient, and what their goals are, and trying to ensure that anything that we do maximizes quality of life. So we tend to have long-term relationships with patients, um, and we pr- tend to do... You could be a urologist who never operates, and you'll still have a great practice, You because we do a lot of clinical mm-hmm. medicine. You could be a urologist who only operates. And you not be a urologist who does a ton of procedures. Um, and I liked that because I knew I was going to have a family. I like the big white cases. So the cases that I do, I'm taking bowel and making new bladders out of them. I am putting um, artificial urinary sphincters in people who leak so that now they don't leak, they're dry. Um, I'm helping women with incontinence or people with prolapse. and so, the, Or like reconstructing the, the connection between the ureter and the kidneys. So In a given day, I could do a robotic surgery, an open surgery, a microsurgery, and all of them are targeted towards improving the quality of life of of our patients. And that's just such a magical thing.
0: quality of life is something that's really important to me, I think. Mm -hmm. And actually it's part of my post-training aspect of the way I practice that Mm -hmm. I think I'm developing a little, I'm being a little bit more mindful about. So what is important to the patient? is 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 becoming i'm 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 slightly ashamed to say it's becoming now more important to me as well i Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the way we are trained is uh goal oriented Mm -hmm. but it's not always patient goal oriented right it's always there's something to do let's execute x um Mm -hmm. whether the it's not often that we get to actually, we, we you know, we say it, we incorporate, it's shared decision making. Sheer deci- I know, I know we say it, <laughs> Yeah. but it's, it's really inception, right? Like the movie, oh, we, we, you know, we kind of, yeah. you know, but I'm, I'm trying to be more mindful and I'm being very deliberate about being mindful about making sure those goals align with what the patient really wants. And, I, and oh, I'll brilliant. give you an example. I'll have patients in, in a pulmonary clinic who have, uh, end stage say COPD something like that mm-hmm. and something as simple as I just want to be able to so w- the question I always ask then is how can I how w- how can I help you the most right mm-hmm. something like that some some variation of that and, and a, a, an answer as simple as I just want to be able to like go to my mailbox yeah and come back that's all I want mm-hmm. um or i just i just want to go outside and watch my my grandkids play something mm-hmm. like that yeah. and then all the other things that that i had to fix are no longer problems yeah. right all, all the other things that i was i'm trained to fix are no longer issues the main goal uh, is now the main goal yeah, and the ma- keeping the main thing the main thing and that's a part of my training and i'm trying to kind of keep cultivating as mm-hmm. i'm as i'm as i'm growing in this field yeah. you strike like me that. as a as a as a lifelong I know we say this in medicine medicine is a lifelong endeavor of in learning something like that you, you strike me i mean you're, you're you're all over the place I but am but, all over the place. but and i say that with uh, with absolute <laughs> respect and admiration but you're all over the place with intent and with intent and with like tremendous execution right so mm-hmm. like we spoke about French. Mm-hmm. You did Kim. You're doing mm-hmm. your master's now. What's, mm-hmm. your, what's your master's in? In
1: health professions education.
0: Right. And mm-hmm. you gave us a mm-hmm. talk today mm-hmm. on uh, personal advocacy.
1: Self-advocacy. Self-advocacy. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And we kind of touched about how you're, you incorporated that and in making sure you're reaching out to mentorship. Mm-hmm. How, how does that tie in with your medical practice for your for your standard practitioner out there
1: you mean self-advocacy specifically
0: yeah
1: oh everyone should practice self-advocacy um the presentation that i gave i showed a picture of um charles dickens oliver twist Mm. and there's a scene where he comes and he asks for more and yes yes (laughs) and in that screenshot the like the Mm. I, I just learned how to do gifs or gifs or whatever people call it, and so I had a ton of them in my presentation, including this one. And he's like lifting up the ball. And there's a kid in the corner looking at you. you can tell that he's like, oh, this is awkward. Like, I don't, like, should I be watching? Should I not? Because I'm uncomfortable. Obviously, the person doing the ask is uncomfortable. And the person listening to the ask might be indignant. They may be uncomfortable to, like, receive it because now you've put them in the position where they have to say no or they have to pretend they are going to do the thing that you asked them. So there's a lot of discomfort around asking. And then additionally, we are in such a place of privilege to be in medicine. Mm. You're in top 1% and, you know, you can't have this woe is me, you know, help me because like I'm so behind in life because how many people get to be in this space? And so sometimes I think that what ends up happening is we misuse gratitude to say that we're not deserving of requesting anything more because how grateful should we be like Mm. like you've gone so much you don't deserve to to ask more look at the the chap over there um so I think that sometimes that stops us from asking and then it's also the fear of retaliation what happened to Oliver Twist he got sold so (laughs) (laughs) so you don't like you're like You ask and then your chair calls you into the room after like you went to go ask someone a question to some other person in a different department. So I hear that you set up a meeting with, you know, nephrology over there. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So I think that there is a stigmatization of asking. And one of the things I shared at the conference is a saying of my mother. Like a lot of my wisdom is not mine. It's my mother's, by the way. Uh, Shout out to Mama Ruth. Um, And she she says, closed mouths don't get don't get fed and she always follows out with a a fancy statement that is which means open your mouth and i used to hate it when she said that and she used to say it because i'm naturally very Mm soft-spoken so it's work for me to speak like this and you know project and seem all confident because i normally just want to be like like that that's my natural state and um I think that you're not, like, if you don't ask, you'll never get. You know, ask and it shall be given unto you. And the worst that will happen, quite frankly... Is no. Is no. The other scenarios, they don't respond if it's an email. You don't lose anything. So I send cold emails, probably weekly. Like, oh, I found this thing that's interesting. I read a paper can't tell you the number of papers I've read and I've just messaged the first author, or the corresponding author, because I was like, that sounds so great. Can I meet with you? Tell me more. Just want to like hear right, you right. talk. So I'm constantly meeting with people who have different mindsets as me, because there's no good hearing from many other Chantals. That's mm-hmm. just like an echo chamber. But I'm constantly meeting with people in engineering and education and in industry or folks and other surgical specialties. And usually I'm like, I I saw this product of yours, or I heard you give the speaker, I read this little thing that you, you wrote. I just want to hear you about your story and, and kind of hear about that messaging. You'll be surprised at the number of people who are like, yeah, like you want to meet with me? Sure. And uh, people like to hear themselves talk. Of course. So I, I know I'm doing a lot of talking now, but most of the time I'm, I'm the listener and you learn so much.
0: I I I definitely the part part of the reason I, I'm doing this podcast is mm. because if it's more than a part, it's probably the core part. The core tenet of it is, I I've, I've always felt that there's much more behind the titles. Mm. Um, your mother didn't name you Doctor, mm. right? Your name, you are who you are before you are any of these other things, right? Yeah. And it's it's one of the things I hold very dear to me. And I, when you mentioned how you, um, you you educate your medical student mm-hmm. about call people by their name, mm-hmm. that is important to me, yeah. right? The, everyone has a story. Everyone mm-hmm. has something um, that makes them truly special, truly unique. And it's not you don't have to be the person to see it, right? Yeah. And in fact, it's it, no one else has to see it, but it's important sometimes. I think the point of stories, and we all have stories, is that they're shared, and someone out there will hear, even if it's just one person. Yeah. And that becomes an inspiration. I'm also reflecting on when you um, mentioned, um, like, reaching out to see if there's anyone else like you, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that in there's some, I don't know, uh, medical student out there that might watch this and. A young black medical student out there I might watch this and was contemplating urology, and in five, ten years from now, is a urologist because mm. of hearing your story. Um, that's awesome. That's Thank awesome. Yeah. Um, so, are you are you in public speaking as a as a thing, or is yeah. that is that just a phase you're going through right now?
1: No, I've done public speaking since I was a kid. Again, my mother, bless her heart. Um, it was very important to her that we enunciated properly Mm -hmm. so i you know constantly work or read out loud being able to communicate in spaces like i've given when i was a kid i was giving speeches in my like i don't know elementary school so i've had a lot of practice at Mm -hmm. being able to communicate my story and and i meet with students all the time and i tell them particularly when they're trying to transition from college to medical school medical school and applying to residency I tell them the world is going to constantly want to tell you who you are. If you create a void and you just show up in a place, they're going to look at you and like, oh, you look like someone who's from this background or or this might be your story. But you have to tell the world who you are. And to that end, it's important that you know your narrative and you have a way of communicating that. Because if you don't, Best believe they'll be making up a mm-hmm. story. Oh, you're a black girl. Oh, you must have had it really hard. They don't know my story. They don't know the privilege that I've experienced. They don't know the disadvantage I've experienced until I tell them. Mm-hmm. They don't know the things that led me to come down this path. Oh, you must have had, you know, you might see a white male and say, oh, your father your, your grandfather, your, you must have had access to medicine. It might be someone who's first generation. They don't know your story. Right, right. There are lots of assumptions. And the narrative humanizes you. Right. For, especially for someone who's high achieving, I think I've gotten to the point where people see me and they're like, oh, the she was like, oh, you know, and um, I share my failures a lot, particularly with people behind, coming behind me, because um, I think it's important for people to recognize that we all stumble and fail. Mm-hmm. It's what you do with that. Um, and it's human to fail. So one of the things I encourage for those who do the cold emailing like I do is, it's not a one-time interaction. If you're fortunate that someone responds, keep that line of communication constantly. I'm not saying like badger people, but set a cadence. Mm-hmm. And so, and I've been doing this since, since after high school. I'm not sure why I started it, but I've been doing it definitely through college and medical school. And medical school, it was every three months. I sent an email to all my mentors. And these were people oftentimes that I had connected with in some capacity mm-hmm. somehow. And I'll give them an update on what's going on in my life. Oh, well, I just finished you know, my chemistry class. So I just came back from studying abroad. And I say initially, well, first and foremost, it has to be an, an email directed to an individual. Don't send a group email because someone will say, oh, Charlie will respond. Sally will respond. No mm-hmm. one responds. Mm-hmm. Start it off with something that's specific to that individual so um how was that conference you told me you were going to or how's your kids something that they know that you wrote this email for that individual Mm -hmm. now if you're in training you probably don't have that much time so the rest of the email Mm -hmm. can be copy paste so (laughs) but the beginning it's important that it's personalized and you give them an update initially when you're building that relationship um you want to share updates and wins because people don't want to hitch their horse to uh, their horse to um a wagon to their losing Mm -hmm. horse is the expression So if they like see that, yeah, you seem like you're, it's like, is she going to, is she going to swim? Is she going to sink? I don't know. (laughs) They might slowly back out, like, oh, you know, I don't know you that well. So that's the girl that emailed me, but I don't really know her. So you want to ensure that you are building a narrative of someone who has the potential for success. It doesn't mean you wouldn't fail. And once you've established relationship, I always start sharing failures. I don't over-explain the failures. No one wants to hear a sob right, story. Right, right. I state it. And then you want to provide insight. This happened, and I think it's because X. Just keep it at that, because you want to show that you understand why that failure happened so it doesn't happen again, so you're not going to be in this perpetual cycle. And what are you going to do about it? You don't want to dump the problem in, in your mentor's lap or that person and, and be like, okay, fix me now. Right. You want to at least have some, it doesn't have to be a fully fleshed out plan, but you can say, I failed a class, I think I I wasn't um, quite understanding the importance of this aspect of the curriculum. Mm. I'm getting a tutor every Friday, plain and simple. And I always end the email with an ask. And this is the part that I think is important because you want that person to do some homework. You want them to think about you, you want them to send another email, you want them to respond with a paper, something, because over the course of time, now that person has been emailing you for six years, And when you call them and you say, hey, can I have a letter of recommendation? They know the arc of your journey. They didn't just meet you as a PGY-1 and then you resurface Mm. as a PGY-5. Additionally, you know that you've like, okay, we're in the same team and they start using We language. They're like where are we applying to fellowship? I'm like, you're not applying anywhere. it's just me. <laughs> but I'm like, we are applying to FBMS. Um The we language shows you that they feel like they are part of your village. Right, right, right. Um, and then they start forwarding you things or opportunities. They may not necessarily do anything active, but they may get an email that comes to them, and they're like, oh, this might be in line with Chantal's interest, and then they FYI mm-hmm. they get So many FYI emails. But the reason is they have a sense of your interest and your trajectory and your goals. And they can now send you resources that are appropriate to you. They can't send resources to every single individual who has ever reached out to them. But you've created a narrative of this is where they're going. And they get this email. It's not relevant to them, but they can push it over to you. And they can help write. like They can pick up the phone and actually tell a story about you. Not, oh, I know this resident. She's really great. Crickets. I know this resident she's really great she's working on this project and you know she has this publication she is, is planning on doing XYZ in mm-hmm. the next five years mm-hmm. that is very different from I know this resident right. so um, I definitely think there's an intentionality if you're going to do the whole reach out thing and cold email it requires some investment and some building of relationship. Right, right, right And right. that's something that I try and encourage my mentees to do, but it, it requires a strong understanding of who you are and the ability to communicate that to someone else so they're not putting labels on you because the world is going to do that. That's Don't it. let them.
0: Wow. That's mm-hmm. very insightful. Mm-hmm. Are you on social media?
1: I am, begrudgingly. Um, very rarely check <laughs> anything, but I did join Twitter because I wanted to avail myself to students of color who wanted, so that's the only reason why I joined. And I, I get a lot of people reaching out to me that way. Um, I very freely share my email and my phone number, so students reach out to me all the time, or people in the continuum of training. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's really the only thing I use it for. Uh,
0: and the reason I'm asking is because it, it, I have, I have, I have social media predominantly. My my primary social media is uh, Twitter. Thanks. Mm-hmm. And. I feel like there is, a, there is really something developing with the way Twitter is being used for medical education. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I love it. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the access to people ch- has mm-hmm. changed dramatically. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so, and, and the reason I, I brought it up just because of the way you're describing that kind of cold outreach. Yeah. That's what, that's, it's, it's one of the, when someone publishes a paper and they, they post it on Twitter, you can respond right there, yeah. or send them a, a DM. I guess that's the that's the that's the uh, millennial. I guess I'm a millennial, huh? <laughs> I guess that's a millennial uh, email now. Yeah, but mm-hmm. yeah. So I think I, I love I love using Twitter for that. As as a professional, they can use that as a professional means of engaging with people, mm-hmm. um, learning new things. It's one of my it's one of my favorite ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted to say, so you're about to, I want to ask, you're about to, how long is your fellowship? It's two fellowship, years. And you're in year one. Year one. Okay, mm-hmm. so you, you just started in May.
1: Yeah, yeah well, yeah. in July. Ju- July,
0: yeah. July, yeah. July. Um, where is that fellowship?
1: University of Michigan.
0: University of, oh. Yeah, I know. Is that Detroit?
1: Uh, where is the University in, of Michigan? It's in Ann Arbor, which is about 45 minutes from Detroit.
0: Detroit is, ha- well, the, the state of Michigan is having a really good year.
1: Is it? Yeah.
0: Uh, the, the Lions are
1: playing very well
0: for the very first time in a very long time.
1: You're talking to my <laughs> person. I don't mean, know what you're talking about. And, um,
0: and Michigan.
1: Yes, that I know about. The because, Michigan yes. one. The, the, I went to work and everyone was wearing blue and yellow. They're like full of pride. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have an, a sense of where you want to go after?
1: It's the million dollar question. I don't know. Um, I know a couple of things. Wherever it is that I go has to be a place that my husband feels um, that he can thrive to because Mm. he moved, he's a Cali boy, born and raised in California, didn't think the world had any other locations outside of (laughs) California. And he, I woke up one day and I said to him, I think, I think I need to go to Michigan. I was a PGY four, so this, I had a good three years ahead of Mm. me. And he laughed and he was like, Hell no. (laughs) And then I, in part because I woke him up to tell him that, oh, and then oh, <laughs> it was oh. poor timing. But I woke <laughs> up and I was like, "Hey, babe, I think I need to go to Michigan." And so, and I didn't have a reason. I right. just woke up one day, so I prayed about it, and I started looking at like what's I what's up with this place? I didn't know anything about the place. Um, I knew what I wanted to do specialty wise, and as I started to explore, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is the place to go." And then I also knew that I wanted to be able to continue doing my research. So my I think I explained a little bit. My research looks at barriers to access to careers in medicine for mm-hmm. 100% in medicine. And I'm looking at the whole continuum from medical school. So those who are applying to medical school, those who get accepted, those who graduate, and those who apply into urology, those who don't match. I'm like doing a lot of quantitative, qualitative studies. And I have a ton of data from AAMC, from our Urolog- Urological Association. But not every place cares about that kind of work. And I wanted to go to a place where people are like, yeah, like this is important. Let's talk about it. Let's brainstorm. I wanted mm. to go to a place where I could continue to like play with ideas. People not just agree with me. Mm-hmm. And people say, have you thought about it this way? Have you considered doing this? Like I presented at our um, health services research Meaning, and they tore apart my research, and I was like, "Yes,
0: this is what like want. your
1: word." Um, but this is exactly what I want: people who are critically thinking as they listen to you, and they probe so they can find the holes. So that when I meet people who actually don't care about this work or actually act- actively against this work, I already have answers because got some practice. <laughs> um, so it became more and more apparent to me that I need to go to Michigan because this is a place where I will I will thrive. And I'm, I have such a sense of fulfillment right now.
0: That's amazing. But
1: going back to my husband, he, he eventually, like, so once I, I learned more and I explained to him why this is the place I, go, I could go to, he's like, let's go visit. He bought his first winter coat and he bought the tickets and we flew out here. This was a number of years ago. So mind you, this is like, I still have three more years of residency. Right, 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 right. And we came and we explored and he was like, I can do this. I can do this. And I was like, can I do three years? He's like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, so I'm doing a two-year program instead. And but he believed in my vision. He believed in my potential, and he came here with me. I was going to say no questions asked, but that's a big lie. <laughs> Many questions asked, but just such a um, he there was such Support. a, no, it's just a belief in in who God had called me to be mm. that sometimes superseded my belief in myself. And so in order to in order to honor him, I said to him, wherever we go next, you get to choose. Because ultimately, I can practice medicine anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's you're not enough urologists. I would like to practice in an academic center, and I would like to go to a plate. Like, there are things that I would like to do, but like I said to you, I'm, I'm, at heart, I'm a caregiver. I can care for people anywhere. My family is not going to be a... Um, you know, casualty in in the pursuit of career right, and, and right, success, because right, right. um, success for me is not defined by a lot of things that people tend to define right. it.
0: Do you do you feel like in this there's certain subspecialties? The more you subspecialize, mm-hmm. it becomes more academic, understandably. Oh,
1: for sure, what I mean is one of those. I was about to ask. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it
0: is it so? It is more academic. It is. Um. Well, that will give you an opportunity then to create a space wherever you are. Yeah. To 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 make something out of that
1: yeah i think that there are, i'm so fortunate to be in a position where um i have options and sure there might be like maybe there's a place where like gee i want to go there they may not have an opening it doesn't mean that the world is over there i'm going to be able to take care of patients somewhere sure i might want to go to a place where they give me like 50 research time and with a statistician and all that stuff but You can still do the work if it's, you know, you're not going to get everything in your checklist. It's not going to be perfect. But my home life is not going to be compromised as a result of my my career pursuit. So I think that um, there's always going to be a give and take and, uh, you know, trying to navigate that. So we're still exploring options.
0: That's the nature of any uh, healthy relationship, to be fair. Absolutely. What's the future looking like? Motherhood?
1: Uh yeah, we have we have a one year old kid. Um, she is she is sweet but but feisty, ah. and so I'm learning I'm learning a lot in terms of boundaries because I tend to. So I will give you an example. I can work through the night. I'm a night owl, mm-hmm. and I can stay up all night. But if my child decides, this actually happened <laughs> this week. If she decides that she's going to wake up and need some TLC, and I didn't go to bed earlier, then I'm like destroyed in the morning. <laughs> so I'm learning. I haven't gotten there yet in terms like I need to take care of myself so I can take care of her. Um, I also used to be that person who just overstayed at work, it's like oh let me just do that one more oh, email. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. round on this patient again. I'm gonna like you know check with the residents Do you want to do this? And I can't do that because I have to go pick her up from daycare like that's that's the thing like i have to pick her up from daycare that's daycare. a hard stop yeah so it's a hard stop with yeah. no negotiables i do push the limits sometimes not gonna lie but we get there before the daycare closes and i don't do any work um between when i pick her up and she goes to bed so i do dinner with her i, we, I play with her i do dinner with her i do bath time i read a book she goes to bed so that's like from 6 till about 8 30 is my child's time mm-hmm. um, occasionally i've had some work dinners around that time and my husband actually teaches at night so I've taken her with me. I was like, oh yeah, we're gonna do this visiting professor and my child is just gonna be right here. And it's, you know, we do the thing.
0: Are you the mother you thought you'd be?
1: No. So I don't know if I mentioned this, but when I decided on surgery, I cried. I called my mother and I cried and I said, mommy, I'm gonna be a terrible mother. And she said, you don't have a child, what are you talking about? (laughs) <laughs> she's like well, what is your problem <laughs> there was no empathy yeah, she was yeah. like where's the child the what, hypothetical what child this? what is this <laughs> what problem is the, yeah she's like come on put the package that away <laughs> um so then I got to shelf that concern because I didn't have a child and I was like okay let me I can't even don't even know if I'm going to get into medical school because now they're telling me that I right, can't right, get scholarships right. and they don't want internationals and all that stuff so I, I was able to put that in the back burner and then I got married and this, I was like, oof, <laughs> children. I know I want to have children, but what's this motherhood going to look like? Um, so I had to reimagine what motherhood looked like. And I, had, they, I think that especially as she gets older, she starts to remember things. I have a feeling I'm going to grapple a lot with guilt um, of not being present because my mother was present for everything. She knew all my friends, parents. She was like, she was my best friend. She knew all the dance moves. She knew all the songs. My mother was a cool mother and she was present. She came to ballet. She took me to Taekwondo. my mother was like all up in my girl and I loved it. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that mother. You know, I, I don't take, I didn't, I don't do drop offs in the morning because I'm in the OR. My husband does drop offs. Mm-hmm. But um, and today I was all day. I was gone to a conference and my husband was with her all day. I actually haven't seen her today. Um, so I'm going to see her after this interview. Ooh. But I when I'm with her, I give her 100 um, percent. And I'm hoping that that is good enough. I don't know. I don't know.
0: I, I, I have the strongest of senses that it's going to be more than enough. I, I really, really feel so. Uh, also, I, I, have a, I, I think kids, and I'm learning this as well, um, appreciate the quality in mm. ways that um, it, 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 it's, it's unremarkable. I think they appreciate that, like, sometimes yeah. one of my favorite things about my kids is sometimes they're just there yeah. and that is quality time. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel they feel the same way about me because mm-hmm. there are times when you know I, I I can go a few days and not get to see them. Yeah. And when they do see me, even the briefest of moments, my daughter will say, "Oh, um, oh, Dad, I I I I missed you yesterday," something like that. And then mm-hmm. if I if I walk in and she, oh my goodness, the excitement, oh. Yes. Oh.
1: Yes. yeah, yes, My kids now is doing this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's that's so amazing. Key. Yeah. So well and after that what's what's next so our question i always ask my my guests so mm-hmm. in a year five years ten years where do you see and some a lot of that can be as vague as possible yeah but what is the clearest picture that you have
1: in a year i'm still gonna be in fellowship <laughs>
0: yeah. so we're
1: still there um but i will know where i'm going afterwards and mm-hmm. i'm a planner so it's nice to have a sense of like this is where you're going because i know myself i'm gonna start building like trying to build community virtually and reaching out to people and trying to like a mentorship team and all that stuff, trying to establish as much as I can before I get there. Um, so I think that that's kind that's probably going to be, there's going to be a lot of relief from having a like, you know, a benchmark destination. Or a destination for the next spot. And um, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing with regards to just, empowering people around me like today today just fills my cup i in 2020 when covid happened and there was mm. murder of george, um, george floyd and the world shut down i was frustrated i was frustrated in the medical community i was frustrated at the silence like no i came home my husband and i were like crying and were upset and distraught and i went to work and everyone was like do 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 that's what I felt like. They, mm. they may not have been feeling do 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 do, but I was feeling like that's what they were feeling, <laughs> and no one spoke about like no one spoke about it for weeks. And then eventually, one unsuspecting attending came up to me. I was like, hey, Chantal, how are you doing? I was like, do you really want to know how I'm doing? Let what? me sit you down. <laughs> um, and he happened to, we were, we were in the county, and he we, we sat out for lunch. And I think I just, like, spoke at him for an hour about the state of this country and the history. And mind you, I didn't grow up here. So a lot of the underlying tensions and um, disparities and ugliness of racial relationships were foreign to me. I know occasionally you will feel like something here, something there, but a lot of the ugliness, the underbelly of it was foreign to me. And I started educating myself voraciously. I can't tell you the number of books I've read and the number of talks I've gone to. I would never understand it like someone who's been here. Been here. And when mm-hmm. I say been here, I do not mean like just born here, like been here, generationally experienced this, this thing. But... I had a curiosity and I wanted to know and I felt like there was a sense of like, oh, I don't want to see that. Sort of like the kid in the picture from Oliver Twist. And I demanded my department look and look at itself. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people were like, oh, once they, once they realized that they couldn't pretend that it was happening, they're like, OK, let's, let's, let's make this panel and let's like go out into the community and let's go do this outreach and let's like make this plan. Everything, everything was so external. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Let's look here. What are you doing? What conversations are you having with your children? What conversations are we having in this in this department? What are you doing? Put a mirror to your face. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like demanded that of of the de- of the department. And now I've actually lost my train of thought. I'm not sure where I was going with all of this. Um,
0: the the underbelly. The
1: underbelly. Yeah, but there was a reason why I <laughs> we went to this trajectory. Gee, lost my train of thought. But it's okay. Um, this that's kind of what my that was kind of what led to my research and so in the next year in the next five years i hope to be able to continue to create space because oh sorry now i remember so um in in that chaos i tried to create community virtually and that Mm. looks like um creating a a community on twitter so folks in urology but one of my very good friends um and mentor chanel wilson so she is a practicing urologist she put together a whatsapp group uh, of black urologists across the country Mm -hmm. Um, and i like to think that i contributed in terms of trainees and and you know getting people plugged in and so Mm -hmm. we made this whatsapp group and all of a sudden you're hearing about people's experiences at these different institutions and like you know, things with patients, things with their their faculty, or things with, like, promotions, and, like, okay, I'm not crazy, I'm not, you know, sometimes you feel gaslit, like, this is real, and I'm not the only one experiencing it, so in the next year, in the next five years, I hope to be able to, you know, create space, you know, for people to be able to share, um, and also, like, promote people, sponsor people. Today was really fun, because I got to meet people who I'd connected with on WhatsApp, and have never met in four mm. years. We've emailed, we've talked, we've cried, we've like shared wins, and then I'm like meeting them for the first time. Like, oh my gosh, I give them a hug. Like, I've always known you, but I've never felt you. Right. And um, so I think that you know, the next year, next five years, continuing to build that community, continuing to do my research because I get to hold the data to the people who are like show me the data. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I got you. Show you the data, but and also I want to switch from describing to interventions. So okay, we've described the problem. We know there's a problem, there's a representation problem. And that's a numbers game. That that mm-hmm. I think people can v- fix very easily. But the inclusion problem, the like, how do you exclude me by not talking about things that I understand? By talking about like hockey, which I'm never going to be interested in. (laughs) Trust me, I'm not gonna pretend. I did for the first three years of residency. I used to look up the interests of my attendings Mm. in addition to learning about the case and learning about my patients. So I have something to chat with you about in the operating room. And it's exhausting.
0: Yeah, that's a lot. If
1: we're doing a five hour case and I'm trying to remember all these stats about these teams that I (laughs) it felt it was a lot. And then I stopped. I was like, I can't do this. It's twenty twenty. I was tired. And I stopped. Then you become the person who doesn't engage and you're not a team player and you're not trying and you seem like, you know, then they start asking you questions like, you know, if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. We can help you transfer it to a different program. We, you know, we can help remediate you. We can help you get, you you know, physical, what was it, psychological support. I'm like, I'm not crazy. I'm not stressed. I just don't want to talk about hockey. So um, creating spaces where people feel like it's okay to be your authentic self. It took, like, It's If you want to listen to Beyonce in the OR, We'll have lots to talk about, Mm -hmm. but if you're listening to some, you know, heavy metal that I I just, I don't know. You don't relate to. I don't relate to. So in terms of interventions and things that we can do, I think people overplay the diversity representation thing because it's a numbers game and that's, it's an easy fix fix if there's intentionality. Some people just don't want to do that, but it's an easy fix if you wanted to. So I I have a lot of projects around the match and like how like people use numbers and I'm like, you could fix this. The inclusion thing requires a, I see you as a person who has a history, a story and interests may or may not be in alignment with with us. I want to hear more. Or if you come to me and you say, I didn't quite like that interaction or what you said kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. did something negative to me. I'm not going to be like, oh, you know, like I'm not trying to be racist. I'm not right, trying to be, right, right, right. no one's accusing you of anything, but can we have a conversation about how interactions are not always positive? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can have a conversation, we can move past it. But the moment you create a situation where people feel as if they can't even have a conversation, you start to like then keep your professional mask on. I'm not going to take it off because you can't handle mm-hmm. it. I'm not going to come to work on my Afro because I don't want you to touch it. You know, I'm, I'm going to be my, your urologist with my white coat I'm not going to be Chantal you know so that I think is really interesting powerful work and it's a space that I kind of want to get into year five
0: you are an inspiration that's very kind yeah quite remarkable thank you thank you so much this was uh, this was amazing.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. I certainly hope you keep coming back to New Orleans. So we can have a this this can be our <laughs> follow. We can have our you know a uh, follow up episode. Like uh, oh, where, where are we? Where are we next?
1: I'm gonna keep coming because I love the Joneses. They are they are
0: they're, very lovable. They they're supposed to be on the podcast, but they've been ducking me.
1: Is that why they asked you to? <laughs> they've
0: been, <laughs> they've um, been ducking me. Both of them. Both of me. them have been ducking me. But it's okay. I'm gonna get them.
1: They're solid yeah. people. Good yeah. heart and um. I think for young people who are married and, you know, we all have struggles. I think Mm -hmm. oftentimes people try and put their like perfect lives on social media. It's nice to have um, people who are in a similar stage of life Mm -hmm. who you can share the the lows and the highs with like my husband and I were talking to them about some of the difficulties of being married to medicine is what mm-hmm. my husband calls it it's like oh, married <laughs> to medicine but we can have those honest conversations without be, without shame mm-hmm. and without judgment and without um a sense of I'm gonna go home and be like you told them that you know we did this uh, we have a very um our marriage is such that, is such a blessing that we're, we over communicate, and we have communities of individuals such as um, Dr. Jones and Dr. Jones <laughs> um, that we can be honest with and um, share authentically, and not be judged for it. And it's it it injects life into a marriage. I hope everyone who is in such relationship has that kind of community. I think it's vital.
0: Everyone deserves a village.
1: Everyone deserves a village.
0: Everyone deserves a village. Mm. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that Good. was amazing. Okay. That was awesome. I'm a I'm, I'm very nervous. <laughs>